previously on If the Walls Could Talk. There was a choice of close the hospital or allow this investor to take over the business. Peter Rogan got into the business of Edgewater Hospital. I don't know that it was in his master plan to do what he did. From then on, that was the demise of the hospital. Read. The following contains adult language and content. Discretion is advised. Throughout the 1980s, Edgewater Hospital struggled without its co-founder, Dr. Maisel. Even with multiple rounds of layoffs, it was bleeding money and in a fight for survival. Between 1988 and 89 alone, the hospital lost more than $18 million. Adjust that amount for inflation, and today, that number would be over $42 million. Things were so bad, the hospital's board of directors put Edgewater up for sale. That's when a man named Peter Rogan stepped up and paid just $1 million for the hospital. Under Peter Rogan's ownership, the hospital did a 180, and within two years, it turned a profit. As the 1990s rolled on, those profits climbed to the millions. This successful turnaround led people to call Peter Rogan a savior. But by the time all the dust had settled, the feds would call Peter Rogan a liar, a fraud, and a man who worshiped the golden calf. And that golden calf was money. With Peter Rogan in control of Edgewater, the Dr. Maisel era officially came to a close. I saw a lot of change. Jim Ginter is Dr. Maisel's grandson. Some of it makes me sad, but yeah, it was it was an awkward changeover. Jim continued working under Peter Rogan. I thought, well, he's going to have it out for me because I am part of the old Edgewater Hospital. I am part of the family. For a long time, was intimidated by him and members of his team. I was walking down the hall, he was there. I sort of hold my head down when I walk by, you know, didn't engage in conversation. At the time, Peter Rogan lived in Northwest Indiana, and many of his new hires were people that previously worked with him. There was always a little bit of mystery about the group because they lived in Indiana. So what was their connection? What did they want from us? It was sort of that feeling. Peter Rogan's career in healthcare included years working as a consultant at Ernst & Ernst, which later became Ernst & Young followed by a stint as CEO at a Northwest Indiana hospital. Peter said he turned that hospital around, but the government said the hospital board asked him to leave. Peter Rogan, from what I've heard from other people that knew him, he was just a slash and burn kind of guy. Michelle Saygraves was a nurse at Edgewater. He could be your best friend, he could be very nice, as long as you were towing the line. And I wish I could say, I never trusted that man, and I don't know what he was up to, and there was always something. I can't say that, because there was nothing on the surface that appeared not right. The guy, he was not a friendly person. That's longtime Edgewater doctor Rogelio Manulet. You know, he kept his distance. I never saw a smile on the man's face. Chris Ledger worked at Edgewater. Peter was standoffish. You didn't talk to him. You didn't look at him. <laughs> he was there, but you weren't supposed to talk to him. <laughs> we heard that Peter liked to be called Dr. Peter Rogan. Although he wasn't a medical doctor, he did have a PhD in hospital and health administration. If he thought you were loyal to him, he was far more loyal to you in a mobster sort of way. <laughs> Kathy Colombo was a nurse at Edgewater. When one of the nurse managers had her first baby, she's home and there's a knock on the door and it's a messenger with a silver rattle from Mr. Rogan. 
Mr. Rogan used to let us have our nursing administration meetings on his yacht. Denise King was a nurse at Edgewater. Bought us dinner, then we went on it, and he took us around Lake Michigan. Like, once a year, we'd do that. That's when I realized, oh, wow, Mr. Rogan's got a lot of money. Very much like the hospital's co-founder, Dr. Maisel, people told us Peter Rogan was well-dressed, a micromanager, and had a temper. He would have glimmers of nice, but you would hear him yelling, and people would come out, you know, with their tail between their legs after they had had a taste of that temper. Yeah, that was an everyday occurrence. He's kind of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde type. A comment Peter Rogan once made still sticks with Michelle. This was the famous saying at Edgewater. He'd put his hand up and he'd say, I don't care if we get sued. I have more money than they do, and I will tie them up in court. You'll want to remember that, because it's going to foreshadow things to come. If there's one thing we learned about Peter, it's that he didn't want to talk with us. We reached out to him, his children, and many of his former business associates, but no one responded. So in this podcast, a voice actor will read for Peter. Other than Edgewater Hospital employees, the only person who would speak to us about Peter was one of his former lawyers. A guy like Rogan, if he didn't like you, he let you know pretty quickly. That's attorney Neil Holman. I got along with him pretty well. Neil worked for a law firm that Peter hired to defend him. He was an intelligent man. He turned that hospital around and saved their jobs, as I recall. And, you know, he had quite a career, and then he fell off the tracks or something. See, we, um, we never got paid, so that was the end of our relationship with Rogan. With Peter Rogan in charge, he closed the hospital's daycare, outsourced numerous jobs, and slashed expenses. He also changed the hospital's name to Edgewater Medical Center, but for the sake of simplicity, we'll continue to call it Edgewater Hospital or just Edgewater. Also gone were the hospital's private rooms and page boys. But one of Peter Rogan's biggest cuts was the maternity ward. The birthplace of Hillary Clinton, John Wayne Gacy, and tens of thousands of Chicagoans no longer welcomed newborns. Instead, the hospital shifted its focus to senior citizens. It was a curious move to target seniors on Medicare because at the time, most hospitals sought out younger families with commercial health insurance. We got to the point where we're cutting corners using equipment that wasn't the best. That's Roger Eman. And instead of investing in the equipment and in the people, it was not that. It was how much money can I take out of the hospital? Totally different from when Dr. Mazel ran it. The downfall came when there was new leadership and ownership. It was like night and day. If the walls could talk, it would be, what the heck happened here? Dr. Mazel hired Roger Eman, but it was Peter Rogan who promoted Roger to vice president of medical staff development, marketing, and public relations. With a title that long, his job had to be important, and it was. Roger Eman became the number two guy at the hospital, under Peter Rogan. I like to treat people with dignity and respect and nicely, and I go the extra mile. The Bible says, if you ask to go a mile, go two miles. Roger kind of looks like your high school guidance counselor. He's a tall, friendly man with glasses, white hair, and wears a warm, comforting smile. I try to give my best to everybody and help people in need. I've always been that way. I, just it's natural. That's my, I think I got it from my parents. My father owned a construction company. You know what his contract was? A handshake. If Peter Rogan was the bad cop, Roger Eman was the good cop. 
the exact opposite of Pierre. <laughs> Chris Ledger worked at Edgewater. Everybody talked to him. Everybody said hello to him. He was just the nicest guy. He really was. He was nice. He was supportive. Michelle Saygraves was a nurse at Edgewater. He always looked like he was right on the edge of having a mental breakdown. They often overheard Peter yelling at Roger. Roger would always say how Peter was this scary guy and I have to do what Peter says. Roger Eamon was a little bambi. He was like the little guy that wants to do good but also wants to please and would be pushed into things that he couldn't control or stop the ball rolling. I mean, Roger was definitely his yes man. It was Roger's unwavering allegiance to Peter that ultimately got Roger in trouble. I don't know what he was thinking in his mind, but what I have rationalized is that he got mixed up with, you know, the one kid that can make you do anything you would never do, but somehow they talk you into it. That was their relationship. He would do whatever he had to do to please Mr. Rogan. What Roger was later charged with shocked everyone at the hospital. From what I heard, he was in tears when he was getting sentenced, and I'm sure it's not because of the sentence. It was because of his humiliation and guilt. Dr. Rogelio Manulet also worked with Roger. He was a good person, but I think uh, that he was the full guy. He would have never done this on his own. Your destination is on the left. <gasps> That's 100% Peter Rogan. I'm pretty sure that is him. Hey, it's Todd and Stephanie. So you're going to hear a lot about Peter Rogan. He's the guy who purchased the hospital in 1989 and was one of those in charge during the hospital's final years. The years where things got pretty bad there. Although he didn't participate in this podcast, we did have a chance encounter with him in a grocery store. We'll share what happened on this week's Second Opinion episode on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash if the walls could talk podcast. Edgewater Hospital in the 1990s was all about change. There were the physical changes, but also a new emphasis on the bottom line. It was all about the dollar. I mean, it really was. Denise King was a nurse and watched as the hospital doubled as a movie set. Backdraft was filmed there. Losing Isaiah was filmed there. A handful of movies and even a TV medical drama were filmed at Edgewater. The days of seeing celebs like Frank Sinatra and Jimmy Stewart were replaced with Kurt Russell, John Mahoney, and Ron Howard. Those were some of the stars who roamed Edgewater's halls while they filmed there. Even an English rock band filmed a music video there. They were always like renting out the space to make money. If there was a TV show called Flipping Hospitals, there'd be an entire episode devoted to how Peter Rogan fixed Edgewater. There were people that I talked to at the time who couldn't think of another hospital that's gone that way in such a short period of time. Journalist Bruce Jackson wrote about Edgewater's turnaround for Crane's Modern Healthcare and the Chicago Tribune. A lot of turnaround stories for hospitals at that particular time in the 90s meant that they were going to have to get physicians on their medical staff and get primary care doctors to start referring patients there. Having more doctors led to more patients. And that is how he did it. In an interview with Bruce, Peter Rogan said, You have to make it convenient, culturally sensitive, and focused in terms of providing care to either medically underserved or the disenfranchised. This led to a 24% increase in patient admissions. Those patients paid more at Edgewater. For multiple years in the 90s, Edgewater was the most expensive hospital in Chicago. That stuck out because... 
Usually the most expensive hospital services are at teaching hospitals. Edgewater, I do not believe, was doing any research. And they certainly weren't training lots of residents. With all this money rolling in, it meant Edgewater Hospital was back on solid financial ground. Things were going so well that Peter Rogan cashed out. His 1994 sale of the hospital made him a millionaire. I think it was $35 million. In the deal, he pocketed over $17 million, while his children, they made over $4 million. Rogan buys it to run it for five years. He turns it around, nothing wrong with that, and then you sell it. A management company then took over day-to-day operations. The interesting thing about that is the management company was affiliated with Peter Rogan. Not only did Peter's company get paid to manage the hospital, with a fairly lucrative management contract. But Peter also received a three-year deal to remain the hospital's CEO. Not a bad deal, huh? So this is where things start to sound like a game of Monopoly. Peter Rogan sold the hospital, but continued to run it as CEO. His company even got a deal to manage the hospital, with rates and fees well beyond what other companies charged. And his cash grab didn't end there. He also purchased some of the buildings and parking lots and then rented those back to the hospital. There were also questions about how that million dollars from the original sale of the hospital was being spent. So usually when a hospital sells and a foundation is created, it's considered a charity. Maybe they'll give out grants to the local Y or community services. There has to be some community benefit. But that didn't happen at Edgewater. When I looked at the Edgewater Foundation, I believe that there were bills being paid. A water bill comes to mind. Not only did the Edgewater Foundation pay a water bill, but almost 900000 of that million dollars went to pay two malpractice claims and unemployment insurance contributions. According to Peter Rogan, Some of the proceeds were used for charitable purposes. There was nobody really watching that. But all the drama was just beginning. I had a couple people calling me and saying, you ought to look into Rogan. You ought to look into the hospital that he bought in Edgewater. Senior citizen patients fueled the hospital's turnaround, but there were questions about where they came from. They were getting patients not from the Edgewater neighborhood. The vast majority of these seniors came from low-income housing on Chicago's south side. A lot of people know the Chicago Housing Authority is subsidized housing for low-income families. There's also federally subsidized Chicago Housing Authority senior centers. Edgewater targeted these seniors living in these Chicago Housing Authority senior centers. There were a lot of hospitals that certainly had relationships with CHA senior centers because, hey, patients get sick, they should go to the hospital in their neighborhood, right? Edgewater was not in that community. Edgewater Hospital set up clinics in these senior buildings and offered free health services, like diabetes and blood pressure screenings. Many seniors who went to these clinics were told that they had more serious medical issues. Most of these seniors could have been treated through routine office visits by their own doctors. But instead, I had some sources telling me at the time they wanted people to get on a van and go up to Edgewater, which was unusual because there were probably 25 to 50 hospitals, depending on how you drive from the south side to the north side. And Edgewater was the furthest north hospital in the city. I had the van drivers that were to pick up these patients at a senior housing building. Kevin King was responsible for transporting these seniors to Edgewater Hospital. It just never made sense why we would be picking up patients, bring them all the way north to Edgewater Hospital. But at the time, I didn't think of it too much. You just, you know, busy doing your job. To further entice these seniors, they were promised some freebies. 
We also had a limousine service, and there would be people coming in for surgery in this limo. A free ride in a limo was one perk, and a free meal was another. The word got out through the building that get checked out, you get a free lunch at the hospital. It didn't take me long to see how they were preying on all these people. Laura Wasilak worked at Edgewater. The common theme was there was no one looking out for them. They were very poor, a lot of immigrants who didn't speak English or didn't have any family to protect them. Nobody wants to go to a hospital. So I think that was very jarring for the patients that I had talked to. Like, why are we going up here? More patients meant more money for Edgewater Hospital. The problem was... There were some patients who didn't think they should have been admitted. When I first got there, I thought, well, this is weird. Michelle Saygraves was a nurse at Edgewater. There are some people that they're putting in the hospital that aren't sick, that have never been sick, and they don't understand what's going on. I remember this elderly lady. She lived in a Chicago housing senior facility. And I said, did you ever go to Edgewater? She goes, I don't want to go to Edgewater. There's people who come through here and they say, hey, you look sick. You look sick. You need to get on the bus and go to Edgewater. And I'm thinking to myself, that's not how it's supposed to operate. We would hear stories about people coming that didn't need to be there. Nurses like Denise King wondered why people who weren't sick kept turning up at the hospital. One patient in particular. A frail, elderly African-American woman came in in full leather restraints from the south side of Chicago. And one of my nurses called me and she's like, Denise, this woman is in full leather restraints. She is totally competent and doesn't know why she's here. Well, when I first went to assess her, I determined that she was mentally competent. So I told them right away, take those restraints off. And there was paperwork filled out by someone. I called him and he said, no, I never signed it. And he gave me another name. Called that doctor and he said, oh no. But the two of them kept going back and forth, blaming each other for filling out paperwork for the ambulance to commit this woman so they could do full leather restraints. I called her son and he came and picked her up and took her home. Think about your elderly grandmother and you're going to be sent on a bus all the way up to where Lakeshore Drive ends and have to go to this hospital where you don't know the doctors and you don't know the people and you don't even know where the hell you're at. It was very upsetting to the patients. Even more upsetting was the way that many of these patients were treated at Edgewater Hospital. Throughout the 1990s, dozens of senior citizen patients turned up at Edgewater Hospital. Busloads of these seniors arrived daily from faraway neighborhoods. You'd get eight people at one time that would come in. It's like, where are all these people coming from? Christine Joyce was a nurse at Edgewater. And it was usually African-American, mainly women. The hospital was a few blocks from Lake Michigan, and that was something foreign to one of her patients. She had never seen Lake Michigan, and I'm like, well, how did you get here? And she's like, well, I went to the clinic because they cut my toenails. Then they said my blood pressure was high, and they brought me here. Edgewater nurses suspiciously looked on. And it all seemed kind of strange. Emily Becker was a nurse at Edgewater. You get all these admissions. The Chicago Senior Housing Authority, they had some kind of deal with that. And they would just offer them tests, treatments, x-rays, all different things. Even more strange was that these seniors were placed on a mysterious unit on the hospital's second floor. 
everyone kind of would hush-hush talk about the second floor. Chris Ledger was Edgewater's social worker. The second floor was the dirty little secret that no one was supposed to talk about. And there was another rule about the second floor. I wasn't actually allowed on that unit at all. This mysterious second floor had its own dedicated medical staff. So a lot of people would ask me questions like, what is this? What's going on? And, you know, I'd be like, your guess is as good as mine. I'm not allowed. And then when they would hear I'm not allowed, then they're like, there was something not right, but no one knew what to do. When someone would see Chris on the second floor. I would get reprimanded for being on the unit. Her supervisor and even Roger Eamon would ask. Why were you there? You've been told you shouldn't be there. If hospital staff had no idea why these patients were stashed on the second floor, these patients' families felt even more helpless. They'd call all over Chicago, frantically looking for their missing loved ones. Some even turned to local radio stations for help. One of the social workers, she heard on the radio, we can't find our mother, we don't know what happened to her, she just disappeared from her housing development. When she found out her mother was at Edgewater Hospital. She was very upset. She didn't know how she got there. She's like, my mom wasn't sick. How did we get her? But the biggest question was, why Edgewater? They were like, why is my mother all the way in this hospital on the north side? You have to pass so many different hospitals to get to Edgewater from the south side. And this was before Google. So it wasn't like it was an easy process to find their family. I mean, I got yelled at several times by family members who were looking for their parents and they couldn't find them. And again, I couldn't answer a lot of these questions because I wasn't allowed on that unit. So Chris talked to Roger Eamon, but Roger didn't seem concerned. It was always, don't worry about it. We've got it taken care of. There's staff down there. There's social workers. Send those calls to the second floor. They know what to say. Don't worry about it. He was very evasive, very vague, but he would never talk any further about it. There was a reason that no one was allowed to see these seniors on the second floor. They were taken from their apartment, put in an ambulance, taken to the hospital, told they have something wrong with them. The sad part is there would be nothing wrong with these people and they would do test after test and you'd talk to them and they'd be like, I don't know what they're doing to me. I don't know why they're doing these tests. The doctors couldn't even answer their questions. Everything was very vague. Sometimes the goal wasn't to treat these senior citizens, but rather to take away their homes. Let's say the manager of the CHA building was having an issue with the patient, whether it was they weren't paying their bills or they weren't taking care of their apartment. They would say there was something wrong with them, bring them up to Edgewater, keep them there for the necessary three-day stay to get them into a nursing home. Once they were in the nursing home, they would call the manager and say, hey, this person's in a nursing home, go ahead and get rid of their apartment. They would then close up their apartments and get rid of everything, and then somebody new would be in that apartment. And that's how they would get rid of unwanted people that were living in these apartments. You could say that some of these people were being kidnapped. It is like kidnapping. They were literally taken from their homes. I think that was the part of it that was the shadiest. More than 20 years later, It's something that still haunts Chris. I I think people would be absolutely appalled at what they actually allowed to go on in that hospital. 
because they were the middleman. They were the ones who brought the patients in, allowed them to be there, and then put them in nursing homes against their will. Looking back, I can't believe that that all went down. I can't believe that they got away with it as long as they did. That was probably my holy shit moment. Edgewater Hospital relied on their clinics in public housing to maintain the steady stream of patients coming into the hospital. And in order for that to continue, they needed cooperation from some dirty doctors. We'll introduce you to these dirty doctors in the next episode, but one doctor who wasn't a part of the scheme was named Will G. I do remember Will. Journalist Bruce Japson interviewed Dr. G. He was a young doctor. Dr. G took the job at Edgewater's clinic because he thought he'd be helping an underserved patient population. But that's not at all what happened. Dr. G got a call one day from Roger Eamon, who told Dr. G that his patient admissions to Edgewater Hospital were down and that he needed to admit more patients. He was like, wait a minute, I'm a primary care doctor. We're supposed to treat people and keep them healthy. Dr. G saw this as a red flag. He thought that the hospital was trying to get admissions that were not necessary. One weekend, when Dr. G was out of state, a patient of his was admitted to Edgewater, and whoever admitted the patient forged Dr. G's name. According to Peter Rogan, that wasn't the case. We have no knowledge of instances when patients have been admitted to Edgewater by anyone other than a physician who is a member of our medical staff. After Dr. G complained to Edgewater executives about the admission issue, he was fired. When he went into the clinic to collect his belongings, he was thrown out by a security guard. No one who's not a doctor should be going to a physician saying, hey buddy, why aren't you admitting more patients? I think he was kind of like, because I'm doing my job. Longtime Edgewater doctors like Dr. Manulet were concerned. When you start bringing physicians just for them to bring patients to the hospital, Anyway, you lose the quality of medical care, and then what you're looking at is the quantity of what these people can bring you in revenues. And that's not the way to run a hospital, and that's not the way to be a physician. It encourages overuse of services, over-treatment, and potentially fraud. And fraud was running rampant at Edgewater Hospital. Unbeknownst to me as I'm writing some of these stories is that there were physicians that were under investigation in Chicago that were cooperating with the feds. Bruce learned that the FBI opened an investigation into Edgewater Hospital, but something about the investigation stuck out. They had doctors and people that were wearing wires, which is kind of something out of The Sopranos. That was unusual. Thanks to these cooperating doctors, the FBI was about to hear all the ugly details of what was happening. I have no idea how the FBI got tipped off, but I'm glad they did. Next time on If the Walls Could Talk. Getting people to wear wires in a hospital fraud investigation is unusual. There were a significant number of recordings made. Man, you got to be careful what you say. The tapes involved this scheme to unnecessarily admit these patients to Edgewater. We all knew stuff that was going on was not right. And these patients were being tortured. We were all like, what is going on here? Our first encounter with Peter Rogan was a case of being in the right place at the right time. In this week's Second Opinion episode on Patreon, 
We share that encounter and how we weren't even sure if it was him. Plus the mystery of whether a famous Chicago singer was actually born at Edgewater. If you'd like to become a Patreon subscriber, just go to patreon.com slash if the walls could talk podcast. We posted pictures we referenced in this episode on our website at if the walls could talk You'll also find links to our Instagram page and Facebook group there too. Plus, you can send us your questions for a future Q&A episode. Bruce Japson authored the book Inside Obamacare, which is available on Amazon. You can read his work in Forbes and at Forbes.com. Music in this episode comes from the YouTube Audio Library. Feels by Patrick Patricios. Breathing Down My Neck by Alex Kashkin. Tension Pulse by Bjorn Lind. And Suspended in a Dream by Dmitry Belichenko are all used under license through Neosounds. This episode was written by Todd Gans. If the Walls Could Talk podcast is produced by Buckletown Productions, LLC. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.